0: Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations and debates hosted by the Center in person and online. I'm Tanea Tauber, Senior Director of Town Hall Programs. November is Native American Heritage Month. To celebrate, we convene a conversation to explore the influence that Indigenous people and tribal governments had on the U.S. Constitution and American democracy, from before the Revolution to today. Joining us are four experts. Maggie Blackhawk, professor of law at NYU and an award-winning interdisciplinary scholar and teacher of constitutional law, federal Indian law and legislation. Donald Grindy, professor in the Department of Africana and American Studies at the University at Buffalo and co-author of Exemplar of Liberty, Native America and the Evolution of Democracy. Gregory Dowd, professor of Native American and Early American History at the University of Michigan and Woody Holton, Professor of Early American History at the University of South Carolina and author of Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution. Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center moderates. This conversation was streamed live on November 19th, 2021. Here's Jeff to get the conversation started.
1: Our goal in our precious hour together is for you to teach us, to to spread learning and light about the influence not only of uh, Native American agency, but also of colonialism and Western expansion on the founding of the Constitution and on American constitutional development. So Maggie Blackhawk, I'll uh, begin with you. Give us uh, an overview about the influence of colonialism and Western expansion on the founding of the Constitution.
2: Thank you so much for having me and uh, for focusing on a topic that I think needs much more attention, which is not only the influence of Native people on the constitutional framework that we have now, but also American colonialism. And so with respect to the Constitution and the founding, um, at the time the Constitution began uh, being drafted, it was broadly believed that the current governing document, the Articles of Confederation, had failed in a very particular way, which is it had failed to resolve the issue of how to acquire and distribute lands along the Western front. And so part of the revolution, of course, was a deep concern on the part of the colonists that Britain was going to keep them from uh, taking the largesse of the, what was the American West and the Ohio River Valley And the Articles of Confederation essentially split the baby and tried to make everyone happy by allowing both the state governments and uh, a very weak national government the ability to acquire land simultaneously. And so uh, land was often seen as at the heart of how the new constitutional framework needed to be formed. And the view was that a stronger national government would be able to more uh, methodologically and more economically be able to acquire those lands in the West without provoking very expensive wars with uh, very formidable Native people who lived on those lands and believed quite rightly that through treaty, as well as through uh, longtime historical possession, that those lands were their homelands. And so the Constitution, its structure was in many ways an effort to take the treaty power, for example, solidly away from the states. And that was um, actually, if you look at the work of very recent work of Mary Sarah Builder, there there were native delegates that went to the convention and lobbied for a stronger national treaty power. Um, And so you have a treaty clause that made very clear that the state's could not form treaties and that the national government would take the lead in in large part to be able to uh, acquire those lands. And so you end up with a stronger executive, um, a stronger vision of a military force, as well as uh, the ability of Congress to take over territories, manage those territories, and to set laws for them in order to give structure to Western expansion, which everyone expected, but no one really had a sense of what form it would take. They knew it would go one direction or the other, whether it was going to be violent militaristic dispossession or a diplomatic treaty-based negotiation. But Western expansion was really at the heart of debates around the founding and and the need for a stronger national government that the Constitution structured. And so both American colonialism and Native agency uh, were at the heart of the drafting and passing of that document.
1: Thank you so much for that fascinating explication of how colonialism and Western expansion influenced things from the treaty power to the nature of the executive. A wonderful introduction to the topic. Gregory Dowd, you have argued against the commonly held belief that the American Revolution intensified the danger colonialism posed to Native Americans. And instead, you've argued that the American Constitution granted Native Americans some sovereignty while the British Constitution did not. Tell us more about that argument and how the Native American experience and agency influenced the American founding. Yeah, I'd be happy to do
3: that. And interestingly enough, I can do that without disagreeing with anything Maggie has said. I, I entirely support every everything she said. Um, the way I would put it is that Native Americans have been able to seize from the Constitution an interpretation, a powerful interpretation, and a still powerful and, and working interpretation of sovereignty, um, which is not really possible in a um, British colonial situation or less possible in a Commonwealth situation. In brief, under the crown, and I I do not see the crown as a friend of Native Americans, and I I don't think that indigenous peoples necessarily and former British colonies see the crown as a friend of Native Americans or indigenous peoples. Uh, The crown, Crown sovereignty, crown sovereignty embodied in Parliament in a uh, modern system, uh, is unitary, and really there's not much of an opportunity for indigenous peoples to claim, to to register, to assert their pre-existing sovereignty. But in the U.S. system, uh, because peculiarly, we allow for the division of sovereignty, we allow for um, pre-existing sovereignty, sovereignties of the states, sovereignty of the indigenous peoples, sovereignty of the federal government, you know, of the, of the, of the people as a whole, the, the national people as a whole. These three existing sovereignties still, still exist. And, you know, I'm not arguing that the situation is better for indigenous people in the United States. Indigenous people in Canada, in New Zealand, in Australia have managed to assert in their own ways their independence and autonomy. But in the U.S., we have this system in which the pre-existing sovereignty, the ancient sovereignty, is still acknowledged. Granted, it's under a great deal of congressional sufferance, but Congress has not taken it away. Congress is not likely to. um, because indigenous peoples have been able to assert their power and their authority and to retain these elements. But I, I do not disagree that um, that Western expansion was a potent force um, driving the American Revolution. I do not uh, disagree that. What, but but it would have happened anyway. I mean, in other words, under the British. There was considerable Western expansion. It happened elsewhere in the British empire that the same kind of expansion over indigenous peoples happened elsewhere in the British empire where there was no American revolution. So I, I, I would argue that um, there, there's this, what we should attend to is the way in which American republicanism and the peculiar dimensions of American federalism opened up a space that indigenous peoples, especially in the second half of the 20th century, to our own time, have grabbed and uh, really asserted in in very important ways.
1: Thank you so much for that. Donald Grindy, you have argued uh, with Bruce Johansson that the Iroquois Grand Council had 50 members and that Benjamin Franklin's 1754 Albany plan was influenced by it, and you've noted other influences of the Iroquois Constitution on the U.S. Constitution and of Native American impact on the development of the Constitution more generally, including the first words of the Constitution, we the people, separation of powers, and basic procedures. Tell us more about the influence of Native American constitutionalism on the American Constitution.
4: Well, you have to realize that Native Americans at key times are invited to uh, particularly the, the Iroquois or Haudenosaunee people. At the Albany Plan of Union, they were there, and Franklin was there, and they proposed this, uh, you know, union. Uh, and it's not just me that argues that the Iroquois influenced. Uh, the editor of Thomas Jefferson's papers, <laughs> who was a mentor of mine, also points that out, and... Uh, And um, then, of course, uh, the um, Articles of Confederation incorporate almost verbatim seven or eight articles of the Albany Plan of Union. Other times when there's Iroquois influence, uh, although Ronald Reagan has denied, I don't know if that's been reversed now, but at the time of the Declaration of Independence, the Iroquois chiefs were invited to Philadelphia, and they were the chiefs were in the top floor, and the other members that came were on the uh, lawn outside while the Declaration of Independence was debated and declared. Another thing you need to, to realize here is that Benjamin Franklin became the equivalent of a multi-billionaire primarily for printing Indian treaties. He made a hell of a lot of money on it. And uh, so he knew that uh, because they were best sellers that uh, white people uh, were interested in the way Indians did things and their views and so on and uh, You know, it's not just him, but James Madison who was sympathetic to some things, but he objected to others. He said that the Iroquois government was a government of skirts, which is his way of talking about the power of women. At the Constitutional Convention, John Adams's defense uh, was uh, the handbook that they used. Uh, it was passed out to every delegate walking into the constitutional convention, and there, and, went, and Adams was commissioned to do that because Harvard had the best library, and he was to develop a compendium of government analysis around the world, and in that is the Iroquois uh, government and several other native governments, and so on, and. Adams points out that the separation of powers in the Iroquois government is uh, uh, one of the best examples. Uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, talked about how Indian government, uh, the only government that has less powers than the American government, is Indian nations. Um, so, um, the, the major influences at the Constitutional Convention are we the people, uh, the idea of vesting sovereignty in the people, see. The British government vested sovereignty in the monarch, and God gave that to the monarch, and the monarch passed it on to parliament. Many people pointed out that uh, although God didn't give Indians uh Power, they did pretty well with their government. See, and so that was one because some people wanted to make Washington a monarch and some bishop crown him, and so that God granted power to the government. But we, the people, is sovereignty rests in the people. Another area is federalism, which is really important. Uh, The Iroquois have that, the six nations, and so on. Uh, And this is important that people don't often uh, misunderstand. You got Puritans in the North, Quakers in Pennsylvania, Catholics in Maryland, and Church of England or Episcopalians in the South. And they all are fleeing uh, England and they don't like it. And they all have some trouble getting along with each other. But the Iroquois provided a thing where people with different languages and so on, uh, the Tuscarora, the Oneidas, and so on, can still get along, see, even amongst their differences. And another thing that's important is that the government stretches from New Hampshire to Georgia. And uh, in the past, uh, a government with that size was almost always an empire. And uh, that meant some kind of top down autocracy and so on. And this promise not to do that. So that was a way of union as well. And so uh, we the people sovereignty in the people separation of powers uh, is the next one, uh, in addition to federalism. uh, And Again, Adams and others point out that the separation of powers is distinct in Native America and especially Iroquois. See, that you know, war and diplomacy is the national government's role, and you get down to the local government, divorce, and child custody is in the community, and, and points in between with regards to that, so that states could say they still had some power. They weren't just giving it all up in this process. So this is really, really important. And Native Americans provide the alternative to the British uh, way of doing things. Two things I think it's important to point out here. At the time of the American Revolution, that and it still is the bloodiest war in American history, the British killed 1% of all Americans. So the founding fathers know an appeal to the British form of government is not gonna be very popular because, and remember also loyalists were shipped off to Nova Scotia. (laughs) So there's this strong anti-British sentiment uh, that's there. And so an alternative to the British system is really politically popular, see, in terms of, of this. Another thing that I counter people that argue that we basically got a system from the British, I says, have you ever seen the American Constitution alongside of the British Constitution? <laughs> and of course, they say, no, uh, you, you don't realize that the British Constitution is simply the sum total of all the laws enacted since Magna Carta. There is no Article 1. Section 2, and so on and so forth.
1: Thank you so much for all that. Thank you for calling our attention to the connection between Iroquois thought and John Adams' defense on the Constitution, and we'll look forward to exploring those connections further. Woody Holton, in Forced Founders and in your latest book, Liberty is Sweet, you argue, as your colleagues have suggested as well, that the rise of the Native American coalition and the prevention of the United States from expanding West and seizing Indian lands was one of the primary crises that produced the ratification and creation of the Constitution and the inability of Congress to survey and secure Western lands made them unable to realize their plan to deal with the massive federal war debt. And you you focus in particular on the experience in Georgia and Virginia, which is very illuminating. Tell us more about that central argument of your
5: important books. Uh, Well, thanks for the question. And that takes us back to the origins not of the Constitution, which I'll get to quickly, but to the origins of the Revolution, the British in 1763 tried, and I'll emphasize the word tried, to draw a line along the crest of the Appalachian Mountains and say, you cannot go west of this line. Now, they didn't build a Great Wall of China there, so actual settlers could go west uh, of that line and did, but... In the same way that you or I, if you want to sell your car, you got to have a piece of paper. You got to have the title. I can't just walk up to somebody downtown and sell them my car. I got to sign the title over to them. And this is where the proclamation line of 1763 was effective in that land speculators couldn't get title to land west of the line. And I've been into the archives and seen. Patent issued, patent issued, patent issued, and then suddenly no patents issued, and that's because it took a long time in Virginia, the largest of the North American colonies, for it to actually uh, take effect, but once it did, uh, that shut down the business of getting title to Western land. Again, it doesn't stop actual settlers from getting out there, but in a sense, that makes it worse for speculators because... That means settlers who they had intended to sell land to are now able to go west, swipe land from Indians and not have to pay somebody like George Washington or Thomas Jefferson for it. And of course, Washington uh, said that um, the greatest estates we have in this colony were made by taking up the rich back lands. And Jefferson denied after the revolution being involved in land speculation, but I found seven different land speculation firms that he was involved in before the revolution. They saw that as the way to wealth, and the proclamation line shut that down, and it would still be shut down today. It's hard to imagine if the British had remained and had kept to that policy. And in fact, Greg knows this better than me and can talk about it when when we come back to him, but they still quote the proclamation of 1763 in Canadian law uh, today. So, Uh, there's one way in which Native Americans helped bring on the revolution, Uh, not talking about the Constitution yet, but the revolution. And I have to mention another one I just discovered while researching the latest book, and that is the Native American impact on the Stamp Act. You know, that's the one law, if you know one law that led to the revolution, you know, oh yeah, taxation without representation, the Stamp Act. I finally got around to reading it, and it says where the money goes. The money goes to fund 10,000 troops, British troops that will be left in North America, some in the Caribbean, some in Canada, but the bulk on the border between the colonists in places like Pennsylvania, where you are, South Carolina, uh, where I am, between the colonists and the indigenous people west of them. And they are there to prevent the natives from attacking the colonists, but they're also there to prevent the colonists from attacking the indigenous people not because the British government had suddenly become enlightened and realized these are human beings whose land we shouldn't steal, none of that, but because the most expensive thing governments did then as now was go to war. And so the British government essentially put those British troops out there as peacekeeping troops to keep both sides from starting a war against the other side that the British army would have to come in and finish it. So I like to say that the British government put a human wall of troops on the Western border, and then thought it was quite reasonable to make the colonists pay for it, and that's the Stamp Act. And so I think they had, Native Americans had a huge impact on the origins of war, and then throughout the war, I was struck by how many references there are in the, in the military history of the war, both loyalists and patriots, but not so much British troops, going into battle and giving the war hoop. Uh, I think people reading it in my book will be bored. Uh, they'll see it so many times. And of course he gave the Indian war hoop uh, as they had talked, whether it's George Rogers Clark out at Vincennes or, or loyalist soldiers here in South Carolina. Um, now, they thought they were copying Indians and giving the, the war whoop. I think it's probably the roots of the rebel yell from that later war as well. But it goes to an issue that Professor Blackhawk mentioned, and that is colonialism, that this copying of Indians is part of the colonial project. Uh, I think it's kind of cool to see that Natives had such an impact on them, but uh, people use the term cultural appropriation now, uh, and I think it's appropriate for that as well. And a classic example of that would be the Boston Tea Party. Those guys dressed as so-called Mohawks, not because they actually thought They were going to convince anybody that Mohawk Indians had crossed all the way from upstate New York all the way across Massachusetts to Boston. But because Mohawks were, for the guys who dumped those 342 chests of tea into Boston Harbor, Mohawks and other Native Americans were, and I think you said it wonderfully in your book, uh, Professor Grindy, exemplars of liberty. They stood for strength in the colonial mind, and they stood for liberty. And so I think there's all these influences in the origins of the revolution, in the war itself, which, by the way, I think it's fair to say the natives won the war in the West. Lots of historians say that. And I really became more persuaded of that, researching this, because what's the number one objective of the Americans? New York. They never captured New York City after the British took it in September 1776, the Americans never took it back. They still won the war. What's their big objective in the West? Detroit. And I found about a dozen plans to capture Detroit, because that's the great armory where the British are handing out guns and even more importantly, ammunition to their indigenous allies. And so in the letter where he quote unquote coined the term, actually stolen from a, a lady in Philadelphia, Jeff, But where he supposedly coined the term Empire of Liberty, Jefferson wrote that letter in December of 1780, we're going to establish an Empire of Liberty. And that specifically was a letter telling George Rogers Clark, we can't do any of that until we capture Detroit and thereby disarm our indigenous opponents. So I'll just lay a little bit of groundwork that Native people had influenced the origins of the war and the war itself as well.
1: All fascinating. Thank you so much for that. And for teaching us so well. Uh, Professor Blackhawk, I'm going to ask you a big question, which is to give us a sort of Constitution 101 of the most important uh, Supreme Court cases uh, grappling with the question of uh, colonialism and the Constitution. Uh, in your article, Federal Indian Law is a Paradigm Within Public Law, you note that famous cases like Creek Nason versus Georgia and Worcester versus Georgia forced the court to grapple with the power of colonialism in the Constitution. You also note the important case of Elk versus Wilkins, where the court blessed Nebraska's refusal to allow a Native American to vote because he wasn't subject to the jurisdiction thereof as required by the 14th Amendment. And in a recent New York Times piece, you uh, note uh, what you call the Dred Scott of federal Indian law, United States versus Rogers in 1846, uh, drafted by the infamous Chief Justice Taney, which established the Plenary Powers Doctrine where the United States could wield power over the unfortunate race of Native Americans without constitutional limit. I know that there's a lot there, but it's so important to to teach our audience about those landmark cases, give us a sense of what was going on in them and, and what the court held and what their significance was.
2: Bringing the history of Native peoples as well as American colonialism into the study of the constitution expands our constitutional theory and constitutional history in two large ways. So the first is that it expands our vision of a constitution and who makes constitutional law well beyond the court. And if you look at the long 19th century, the majority of constitutional law was really made by Congress and the executive. The court did little to review during that period. And so if you want to understand the constitution, you really need to look well beyond the courts and Supreme Court decisions to, to understand how that constitutional framework was made. So American federalism, for example, is the easiest example to say, look, the, the formation of a strong national government was reinforced by the Supreme Court um, and Chief Justice John Marshall in those uh, Marshall trilogy cases that established federal power, over the, uh, any dispute over Indian lands, taking squarely that power away from the states and, and placing it within the national government. However, the building up of the strength of the national government was really an executive and congressional project in the West, um, whom Richard White describes uh, as the kindergarten of the American state where the form of the national government took modern forms by allowing the national government to not just make court cases. The court actually just ran away from uh, the executive and the Congress went, because it has no army and no power. Um, but the Congress and the executive really got its sea legs in governing all the way down to the local. And so if you look beyond that, we start to understand that the constitution is so much more than the Supreme Court. And that continues on in the context of federal Indian law and the expansion of another doctrine that I think is central and important to highlight, which is the plenary power doctrine which Chief Justice Taney really brought and domesticated in U.S. v. Rogers, the case that you described. But that doctrine not only allowed um, and gave the federal government license to begin the reservation era, which was an era in which the national government essentially built the tension camps on reservation lands where native people couldn't even leave without getting a pass from a federal agent. And the federal government ran courts and schools and hospitals uh, in ways that subordinated Native people and split up Native families. And that was um, essentially a doctrine that Justice Taney captured from international law and brought into U.S. constitutional law that said the national political branches had extra constitutional power. So it arose not from an enumerated source, but from outside the Constitution, and so thus was not limited by any constitutional limit, including judicial review. So the court's supposed to back away from it. And that doctrine, the plenary power doctrine, is still very much good law. Not only was it used during the reservation era, but over the long 20th and 21st century, it's been expanded to add machinery to all sorts of areas of constitutional law. So the other way that understanding Native history and American colonialism shapes, reshapes our vision of American constitutional law is that it, it changes the canon to be able to understand why immigration law and foreign affairs and governance of the territories really should be central to our understanding of what constitutional law is. So when we have conversations about good governance, it shouldn't just be reconstruction amendments and the original failure of, of human enslavement and that progress narrative, we need to also talk about American colonialism and a doctrine that's still alive, that in the 20th century has been used um, as the foundation for our immigration law, for foreign affairs, um, and to, to fuel all sorts of forms of militarism under executive power. And it actually has been used even most recently in Hawaii v. Trump to uphold the, the travel ban. So this is not a doctrine that has gone away. This was the doctrine that also underlied Korematsu and the detention of Japanese Americans after World War II. Two of those camps were actually on Indian reservations. So the same detention machinery that was used in the late 19th century was used to detain Japanese Americans in the 20th century The same machinery to use to house immigrant families intergenerationally was used to detain Native people in the so-called Indian Wars of the 19th century and to to actually detain families intergenerationally as so-called war criminals, including children. And so if we look at the Constitution through that lens, we actually start to see an entirely different constitutional narrative form, one that doesn't have that same progressive thrust to it in one way. But it does also have the vision of the recognition of inherent tribal sovereignty that Professor Dowd described that is exceptional to North America. So in in addition to having our Dred Scott, there's also essentially a a Brown v. Board of looking at this other form of, of constitutional narrative, this other history, and that is the recognition of inherent tribal sovereignty, which is exceptional to the constitutional power of the United States. It's its part of the recognition power. And unlike Canada or New Zealand or Australia, these Commonwealth countries that we think are so progressive on native issues, the United States is, is alone in having this incredible framework of federal Indian law that is deeply flawed and imperfect, but it is at the forefront of the mitigation of American colonialism as another constitutional failure. So we get both the dark story and the positive story, but neither of which have been explored in any depth because our canon just leaves all of these areas out.
1: Thank you so much for that. So fascinating, describing the influence of the plenary powers doctrine on current questions like the travel ban case and on Korematsu. And just as you showed us the influence of the Native American agency and colonialism on the development of executive power and the constitution itself, so you really have are changing the way we think about its influence on the development of Constitutional law. Professor Dowd, um, you also have played such an important role, as Professor Blackhawk said, in helping us understand recognition of Native American sovereignty. And in your article, Indigenous Peoples Without a Republic, you conclude that in the American context, Indians achieved through organizing violence and litigation a slippery but important variety of sovereignty, making claims on the peculiarities of American republicanism and federalism. And you talk about leading Supreme Court cases from uh, Johnson and Mintosh to the ones that Professor Blackhawk has just been discussing, the, the Marshall Court, Cherokee Nation, and Worcester and Georgia cases to help us understand how this notion of Native sovereignty was developed. So tell us more about what the idea is, how the Supreme Court recognized it, and what its strengths and limitations are. It is central really to a lot of the
3: activities of federally recognized Native American uh, nations today. The notion of sovereignty, I I would argue, and I argued in War Under Heaven, has indigenous analogues. Um, The Western notion of sovereignty has indigenous analogues that uh, one finds in statements um, made by uh, leaders confronting colonialism in the middle of the 18th century. I mean, Minwewe, an Ojibwa leader confronting british colonizers said quite simply god gave us this country <laughs> and in a way that is a that is a statement of sovereignty it is we have inherent possession we have inherent powers if they do not derive from you uh we have them you know i would not argue that the framers had that necessarily in mind themselves but i would argue that they set up a republic um in which it is possible to have Sovereignty emanate from several sources, from the people of the nation as a whole, from the people of the states, and as indigenous peoples have come to insist, uh, from their tribal nations. And uh, so Native Americans were, I would say, though, on the minds of the founders and um, on the minds of the founders in some of the ways uh, Maggie and Woody have pointed to, especially as well as Don, that they were uh, both... um, Exemplars of liberty, but at the same time, they were a challenge. Um, they were formidable, as Maggie said. Their powers were uh, militarily formidable. North of the Ohio River, there was a confederacy organizing that was defeating American uh, forces regularly. Um, Georgia was confronting a powerful Muscogee nation, and if you look at the Constitution, it's fascinating to me that Native Americans are mentioned. Only three other people those are mentioned. We the people, people of the states, and foreign powers. That's it. Enslaved people are buried under an amazing uh, proliferation of words in the three-fifths clause, whereas in that same clause, Indians not taxed appear, they're named. Indians without the jurisdiction of uh, the states are named. Um, so... Native Americans clearly on the minds of the founders um, as a challenge. And I I agree that this is why um, the treaty making power was put into the central government, the commerce powers of regulating commerce with Indian tribes restricted to the federal government, in many ways mimicking the Efforts of the British in the 1760s, so trying to centralize control of indigenous policy and take it away from the colonies in the 1760s, the federal government does that effectively uh, under the Constitution. But in a system, a Republican system, that is based on popular sovereignty, that is based on sovereignty that emanates from the people, people of the states, people of the nation as a whole, and also as indigenous peoples have come to assert and to claim and to get the people of the uh, tribal nations. If you look at cases throughout the Supreme Court, many of them, uh, you know, right up to McGirt, one of the more recent celebrated cases, which has a Janus face, I think. This recent case out of Oklahoma has a, um, a dimension that very much enforces or reinforces tribal sovereignty, but at the same time, there's this sense Congress has not ended the reservation. Implicitly, Congress can act. Implicitly, that plenary power that uh, Maggie refers to is still a sort of Damocles, possibly hanging over. It's possibly there. But I suspect the strength of indigenous peoples, the continuing strength, will continue to resist this. It isn't a neat picture, it's a very messy
1: picture, but there is th- th- that tension remains. Thank you very much for that. Thanks for calling attention to the ambiguous status of the McGirt case and also for really helping us uh, understand how debates about sovereignty, which were so central at the time of the framing, uh, for the framers themselves, were influenced by conceptions of Native American sovereignty. Uh, Donald Grindy, before the panel started, we were talking about James Wilson's original draft of the Constitution, which we I have the honor of displaying at the Constitution Center, thanks to the Pennsylvania Historical Society, which owns the draft. And you said that Wilson's draft and Wilson's footnotes show some influence of Native American experience and thinking. Tell us more about that and of other influences of the Native American experience and agency on American constitutional development.
4: Wilson's draft uh, was ignored, well, couldn't, was not seen by constitutional scholars for 125 years because Madison said that everything should be destroyed, but James Wilson could not destroy the first draft that was at his committee meetings in August of 1787. And so it remained in the family until the early 20th century. And then descendants, uh, the grandchildren or whatever of James Wilson gave that that to the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, and that's when it emerges into constitutional law. So that's an important thing to understand about uh, all of this is that Madison wanted everybody just to look at his book on the Constitution, Uh, but this is an alternative and it shows more influence by native people and it also shows directly how they use Locke and Rousseau and and others in that. It's really funny because when I was doing my initial research in the 1980s, just before the bicentennial of the Constitution, I went to the Historical Society of Pennsylvania and checked out the draft. Uh, actually, they wouldn't, they said initially, they wouldn't let me look at it, that They had a Xerox of it, and it's four four foot by six foot, you know. So I said, no, I must look at the original. And so they brought it out, uh, put it on the table, and two guys on either side of the table kind of turned it and stuff so I could see it. The lady who was the head of the thing, before I finally did that, she put her hands on her hip and said, Professor Grindy, you realize you're requesting to see the original document, uh, the original first draft of the Constitution? I said, yes, you know. So I think it's important to understand that, but it's also important to connect with some of the other panelists here that Native Americans also exert a very strong economic bond here. When you talk about the frontier, and the British wanting to draw the proclamation line, part of that is revenue for the fur trade. A chief source of revenue is the fur trade for the British to maintain the army and so on. And the British don't get any money for people that go to Western Pennsylvania or into Kentucky uh, and set up a farm. The revenue comes from trade with Indians, and that's a big deal. Then it changes with the founding of the American nation. And uh, it's important to understand that the first 30 or 40 years, the federal government was funded by Indian land. What are they doing? They are buying through treaties, Indian land in Ohio, Kentucky and other places for two or three cents an acre, then they're turning around and selling it for a dollar an acre to settlers in order that they get their piece of paper that says this is their farm. And that's a politician's dream, right? You uh, have the post office, the army and so on, And yet for the first 30 or 40 years of the the development of American government, you don't have any taxes on white people. Uh, And uh, that's a really important contribution, I suppose you could say, that native people paid in terms of that development. Uh, And also, of course, another thing is uh, the white population is exploding. Jefferson says that native women very seldom have more than two or three children because of noxious weeds. That's herbs that are the equivalent of the morning after pill. <laughs> but white women had all of these kids and these kids need a job. And most of them the job at that time 200 years or more ago is go west. You know, 19-year-old boy marries a 16-year-old farm girl, and they head out from Virginia to Kentucky. That's uh, also another important kind of thing, that this westward expansion is jobs for white people. And people that have jobs are more politically stable than people that are jobless. <laughs> so all of these politics play out as a result of relations with native people and the, uh, you know, kinds of changes that come about. The the British depended on taxes on tea and uh, the fur trade uh, and then the the Americans uh, turn around and said, we can go tax free for a while by, you know, taking Indian land and then turning around and giving a piece of paper and saying you can have it for a dollar an acre. Uh, So those are important contributions, I think, as well. And then the legal stuff plays out once the economic and political stuff starts going, is, is one of the ways that I've always talked about this.
1: Thank you so much for that. Well, we have uh, just a few more minutes, eight to be precise, and we always uh, end on time in in NCC panels. So Woody Holden, this may be the last intervention. I'm going to ask you to tell us more about your really important argument in your recent books that states like Georgia and Virginia moved from having questions about ratification of the Constitution to supporting it partly because of concerns about Native American experience. And uh, you even quote the Federalist Papers uh, in reassuring skeptics of the Constitution that a strong national government was necessary to fortify states against what they perceived to be the challenges posed by uh, Native Americans. So so tell us more about that and help us bring that story to life as you do so well in your new books.
5: I like to ask students a trivia question So the first three states to ratify the Constitution are Delaware, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey, all on the banks of the Delaware River. What gets us out of the middle colonies? What's the first other state to ratify the Constitution? And of course, as you suggested, the answer is Georgia. Um, We don't think of southern states as big, big on the federal government. They certainly aren't going to be 100 years later. But Georgia, as Greg mentioned, was caught up in a battle, an ongoing battle, with the Muscogees, which had large, powerfully influenced Georgia's participation in the revolution. they almost kept them out of the revolution because they needed British help, it's now keeping them in or making them very interested in having, as uh, Professor Blackhawk mentioned at the very beginning, the Articles of Confederation weren't doing it for people who wanted to take land from Indians. They needed a powerful national government. So th- we get Georgia, voting unanimously in the legislature to call a ratification convention. And then the ratification convention also voted unanimously to ratify the constitution. And lots of people in Georgia and elsewhere were very clear that they did it because they needed help uh, against the Muscogees. Um, In Virginia, it's a little more complex, there's that, but there's also a more complex factor at work, which is the, the treaty with Britain required that the British leave those forts like Detroit that I mentioned before, um, but it also required that Virginians and others pay their debts. And so the people, especially in what we call the Valley of Virginia, between the Blue Ridge Mountains and the Allegheny, um, people there voted almost unanimously for the Constitution at Virginia's ratifying convention and provided the, the margin of victory. And that's because they really wanted the British out of those forts, The Constitution would make sure that the British creditors got their debts paid back, and that would trigger British compliance with their part of the uh, 1783 treaty, which was that they evacuate Detroit, Niagara, and those other forts. So in very different ways, Georgia and Virginia signed on to the Constitution. And we can say this more broadly, and I want to pick up on something that, uh, that Don just said, that federal government was funded by Indian land. We could add tariffs on imported goods, but I think your point is really good, Don. Uh, Follow the money. We can follow not only the incoming money to the federal government that it made by selling Indian land, but also the outgoing money. And I'll give you a stat and finish on this. An amazing number. I'm quoting John Chester Miller's book called The Federalist Era. So, The biggest thing that the federal government did once it had its own authority to tax was pay off the war debt. That's a whole different conversation I'd love to have with you. But of the operating expenditures spent by the federal government during its first six years of operation, say, 1790 to 1796, out of the money the federal government spent, five out of every six dollars was spent fighting Native Americans, that coalition that Greg Dowd mentioned north of the Ohio rivers. Follow the money. If you follow the money, as Don mentioned, you see that that's where the money's coming into the federal government, a lot of it. And if you follow the money going out of the federal government, it's also where the, the federal government is spending its money. And if you follow the money, you come to the same conclusion that Professor Maggie Blackhawk just stressed, talking about. Indian-related Supreme Court cases still affecting us now, right up through the President Trump's travel ban, you can't understand the mainstream of American history, why the Constitution was adopted. You know, uh, you started us off, Jeff, by giving us the mission statement of the the Constitution Center. I don't know if other people can see it on their screens, but I can on mine, the mission statement of the country, one of those provisions is provide for the common defense. And the only thing I'm going to do when I come to Philadelphia is a little bit of graffiti, change that to provide for the common offense. Follow the money. They spent five out of every six dollars in their first six years of operation fighting indigenous people.
1: What a superb note to end on to to remind us that that central text in the preamble really was centrally influenced by Native American agency, the Native American experience, and the colonial and Western expansion, which, as all of you have helped us understand in your pathbreaking scholarship was uh, central to American constitutional development. I have to thank you so much, Maggie Blackhawk, Gregory Dowd, Donald Grindy, Woody Holton, for teaching us, for all the light you spread, and friends, thank you for taking an hour in the middle of your day to learn about this crucially important topic. All of us have so much more learning to do, and our homework, and I'm going to take it on for myself as well, is to read more of the scholarship and books of our phenomenal panelists who are helping us understand American constitutional history and the Native American experience in a new light. Maggie Blackhawk, Gregory Dowd, Donald Grindy, Woody Holden. On behalf of the Constitution Center, thank you so much and have a great weekend.
0: This episode was produced by Lana Ulrich, John Guerra, Melody Rowell, and me, Tanea Tauber. It was engineered by the National Constitution Center's AV team. This episode was made possible through the generous support of TD Bank. Visit constitutioncenter.org slash debate, see a list of resources mentioned throughout this episode, find the full lineup of our upcoming shows, and register to join us virtually. You can join us via Zoom, watch our live YouTube stream, or watch the recorded videos after the fact in our media library at constitutioncenter.org constitution. As always, we'll share those programs on the podcast too. So be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you like the show, you can help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple podcasts or by following us on Spotify. Find us back here next week.